Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of March 2022. Welcome to episode 82 of this podcast series, aka Work From Home Journal number 25 or whatever. The concept of this show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the comics I read during March. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts aren't really spoilers for the podcast, since those are just lists. But here, we do a little more review, a little more critique, have a little more discussion. But first, we have a little feedback. And first up is a make good. Feedback that we received in plenty of time for inclusion last episode, but which somehow I missed. Sorry, Sir Martin, this is not the way we want to treat a co-listener of the year. Shame on me. On January's Sci-Fi Comics episode, Mart had these things to say. I have read the Legion and Star Trek book, and that was fun. Time Warp is worth $3.50 for the logo alone. It is utterly brilliant in its telescoping time twistiness. Wonder Woman 274 is just Bronze Age class. I love the Debbie Domain cheetah. I seem to have been one of the few fans who was buying the book before Huntress came in. I quite liked her strip, but would have preferred her to be in a Batman book. Yeah, Mart, I totally understand that. I like Huntress being part of the Bat fam as well. I imagine, of course, they were looking for another uh, female, another heroine to team up with Wonder Woman. Mart continues that Adventures 418 and 419 were part of a really interesting period for Supergirl, when she was forever having her heart broken. The ending of 419 was especially Baroque, with the thief who loved Supergirl driving off a cliff with his poor, unknowing girlfriend asking where their friends were waiting, and him yelling, In hell, baby! In hell! Awful cheesecake apart. Look at that Linda on the phone page. It's great art from Tony Dizaniga and Bob Oxner for John Albano's story. He also says that he gave up on the Cave Carson book. It was nonsense. Yes, Mark, I hear you on that one. And he closes by saying that he admits to not having read them when they came out, but remembers adoring those challengers. Bronze Age stories, with guest stars, updated costumes, and all. Just think, if there had been another hair color for white guys, we may have had a fifth male challenger. You know, these days, Martin, first there'd be the bald one, plus maybe someone with a nice blue do, I think. Best of most, Martin. (laughs) And on last episode, February, he also wrote in, Hi, Alan. Thanks for another great listen. 
you got me from the beginning to the end of my gym session, which means I wasn't able to jot down any notes. Oh well, I do recall yelling internally when you mentioned that based on Our Man 1 million, you wouldn't be trying any more issues. Think again, Professor. Think again. The 1 million books were cleverly constructed, as you'd expect from a Grant Morrison project, but regular Flavor Our Man is a delightfully quirky, thoughtful superhero fable about a questioning android hero and his best pal, Snapper Carr. And it's not, woe is me, I betrayed the JLA Snapper Carr. It's the DC everyman hero he was created to be. It's 25 issues of charming fun from Tom Pyre, Rags Morales, and David Micus. Am I right, fellow listeners? Mart. Well, here's the thing. One of the benefits of being a co-listener of the year is that I will take all of Mart and Luke's suggestions under advisement. Uh, We also heard from Billy D as well from the excellent podcast Magazines and Monsters. Hey, Prof. If someone would have told me a few years ago that I'd be listening to a podcast about a reading list and enjoying it, it's safe to assume I would have called them crazy. But I always look forward to seeing a new episode of your shows. Keep up the good work. Yes, thank you, Billy. I I do understand that it is a bit strange. Now, if it helps, I totally stole this idea from a film criticism podcast. On our main topic for February, hashtag Romance Comics Month, Sir Luke Giaconetti wrote in, of course, Sir Luke Giaconetti wrote in, Professor, just finished your Kissy Kissy episode for February and wanted to write in. Placing Romance Comics in February may have been the obvious choice, but I admit I was looking forward to it this year. The great thing to me about seasonal reading is that it often requires one to step outside their comfort zone. And this month is probably the most out-of-comfort zone for me. And I would add, probably for many of our listeners, Luke. But it is great to read new things, even if they are old, and thus learn more about the industry and different aspects of the medium we love as a storytelling tool. This year, I read a few different romance comics across different formats of the genre. There was DC's Young Love from the Showcase Presents volume, which was a traditional anthology title with a recurring lead, in this case, Mary Robin, RN. The biggest draw for me was the artwork, with Big John Ramita handling the lead feature and other well-known Silver Age artists, such as Don Heck, handling the shorter strips. On a delightfully different tack was an issue of Love Mystery from Fawcett. This short-lived title was an anthology, but with two longer features of 12 pages each, and was a mix of romance and crime comics. The effect is something along the lines of a pulp novel with our hero and heroine thrown into life-threatening danger. Sadly, this title, which is public domain, only lasted three issues. Finally, Romance Comics Month would not be complete 
without some archy content. You are so right on that, Luke. So I read Pep Digital Dating Disasters with the many residents of Riverdale, but mostly Archie, suffering various mishaps as they attempt to navigate the dating scene. One standout story involved a speed dating event at Pops, which used the large and varied cast of the series, including the new characters introduced in the mid-2000s, to great and funny effect. Of the titles you read, Professor, of course, the various anthologies jumped out to me. Having begun reading romance comics a couple years back, primarily through anthologies, that is the format I most readily associate with that genre. The Charlton Hollywood Romance issue sounds especially salacious, although I imagine it is pretty tame in reality. That one is on my reading list for sure. I will interrupt this to say that a few weeks later, Luke followed up by saying that he indeed had read that same issue of Hollywood Romance, which is in the public domain. Okay, that was pretty salacious for the era in which it was printed. I did feel that the third girl was sort of a fifth wheel, though. She did not have much to do. But that comic was a hoot. Thanks for mentioning it. You're welcome, Luke. And we return to his regularly scheduled feedback. Additionally, I had a big smile on my face when you discussed the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean Grey from X-Men 30. I was an X-Men reader at that time and remember the build-up to that issue fondly. The execution, I thought, was spot on. Little scenes have stuck with me ever since that initial read. Scott and his groomsmen being unable to tie a bow tie with Beast comparing that task to facing some of their worst villains. Storm, making the weather perfect. And the warning to Sabretooth written in the snow by Logan, who was off on his own at this time after losing his adamantium. Similarly, the discussion of Vision and Scarlet Witch was welcome. My oldest daughter likes Wanda. So we have a few issues of this maxi-series picked up cheap at South Carolina Comic Con a few years back. Obviously, Wanda and Viz retain their power couple status, if their Disney Plus series is any indication. Looking forward to March and globe hopping through comics. Until then, I remain your devoted listener, Sir Luke of the Upstate. And Chris Willett wrote in saying that he has three of the Marvel Jane Austen books. I really like them but I think they would have been better if they stuck closer to the novel's dialogue. It turns out Jane Austen is a better writer than your average Marvel scriptwriter. Yes, Chris, that is probably true. However, in the defense of the writer, the scripter of those books, the comic writers do have a limitation to work around that Jane did not. And that was that they have to cut their dialogue down quite a bit for it to fit into word balloons of very limited sizes. That is a complaint that writers of film and plays and novels often have when attempting to turn their attentions and their skills to writing comic books. There's just so little physical room for dialogue. 
Jason from Hawaii said the episode served as a nice break from the news. It's good to hear that in Aloha. And we heard from the notorious JJG, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, who a few episodes back I inadvertently referred to as J. Jonah Goldstein. Sorry about that, buddy. I know that you don't think of Spider-Man as public menace number one. Jeremiah talked about recent changes in his podcast listening habits and then wrote in about being able to get caught up on a number of our recent shows over here, including some comments directly about the Reading Journal. Professor, I wanted to mention that I really enjoy your year-end wrap-up Reading Journal episodes. I love the analysis you give to the comics that you read over the course of the year, and the breakdown by era, publisher, etc. It's because of those episodes that I've decided to give a serious look to my own reading habits. I use the CLZ Comics application to manage, catalog, and track my comic collection. Last year, I started taking advantage of some of the features I have underutilized, like noting if I had read the comic or not, the date read, purchase date, etc. There are some good reports available in the app, but nothing like writing my own queries or anything like that. You've inspired me to take the data in the app and the paper journal I keep, and start building something to really track what I'm reading. Currently, I'm noting the title, issue number, date, publisher, and whether it's from my new comics reading, like DCBS orders, or my personal back issues, older comics I get from shops and cons. Anyway, if you're interested down the road, when I might have something meaningful, I'd, ha- I'd be happy to share. Now, I must admit to one major disappointment I had with your family of shows. Professor, you talked about and posted on Twitter about your family's vacation to California and the Doctor Who convention, and we don't get a Feb who wary podcast of any kind? I mean, seriously. This was such a great opportunity to do sequels to those shows from 2019 I kid, it looked like y'all had a wonderful time. Sincerely, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Yes, uh, we did have a good time at that convention, and I think it's probably an affair to address that. Probably a number of you may have had that question. And uh, there is just a, a situation that needs to be addressed, and that is when you cross state lines to hang out with Shag, he has started to require the signing of non-disclosure agreements. So sadly, no February episodes this year. Maybe next time me and M do a darkness to light, we'll try to sneak in a little Doctor Who talk. And yes, Jeremiah, I definitely want to hear what you learn about your reading habits. And then Jeremiah joins Karen from Between the Pages, I believe it was, who also talked about how good the CLZ app is at accumulating that sort of data for those year-end episodes that I sort of do by hand. I mean, I have the weekly information from the blog posts, so it's not that hard, but it does make me realize there's a lot to that CLZ app that I am not using. So that is one of my goals for 2022. I call it a late New Year's resolution will be to try to get more out of that app. 
Uh, Social media support for last episode came from Ruth and Darren Sutherland from Trekker Talk and many other epic podcasts. Vic and Phoenix, my buddy Terry Colucci, Sir Manuel Carmona, new listener Shane Kelly, welcome aboard. Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Chris from Professor Frenzy, it's a show, Will Fish, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Chris Lydon, Seven, The Telltale Mind, Carlos Digital, and the aforementioned Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, who I will point out was a recent guest on Billy D's Magazines and Monsters podcast. Thank you for all that feedback and support. I know it makes the episodes a little bit longer, but I don't mind. So, let's move on to comics that I read last month. As I do on the show, I'm categorizing, classifying those books. And first up are the books that I read for podcast appearances, the homework books. And for this month's Doom Speak, we headed back to the future to read Doom 2099, 24, and 25. And then to listen along with podcasts, mostly because of the DC Infinite app and my love for following along with comic podcasts when I have the chance. I listened along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower, and her crew on episodes 69, 70, and 71 of the Hunters podcast from the Helena Bertinelli era of the character. I read JLA 26, written by Grant Morrison, and the very excellent JLA 32 from Mark Wade and Devin Grayson. And then from the Helena Wayne era, the backup story from Wonder Woman 276. And I listen along with Ed Moore on his Dr. Fate podcast, Lords of Order, episode 114. I read Justice League of America 21, which was one of the very early JLA-JSA crossovers. The heroes switch Earths to take on the crime champions. And more Justice League. On a special George Perez-themed episode of Third Degree Burn, I read Justice League of America 192 and 193, a two-parter giving us the origin story of everyone's favorite spinning android, the one and only Red Tornado. And to follow along with Shag, I know, what was I thinking? I listened to Justice League America 46 to listen along with his episode 46, of the JLI Blah 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 podcast. And to listen along with Angela on Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace, episode 55, I read Sensation Comics 35 from all the way back in the 1940s. The Wonder Woman story involved, of course, the glories of loving submission, and was probably the best story in the issue, although Sargon the Sorcerer His story was pretty good, too. And to listen along with the aforementioned Billy D and the aforementioned guest, the notorious JJG, I read a story featuring Swamp Thing, Superman, and Solomon Grundy in DC Comics Presents number 8. And to listen along with the new Batman Family Reunion podcast, I read Batman Family 3, 
featuring a new story with Batgirl and Robin, and reprints featuring the original Batwoman, the amazing Kite Man, and Batman of the Year 3000. I'm pretty sure they selected those three reprints so you'd really appreciate how good the main lead new story was. And to listen along with the triumphant return of From Crisis to Crisis, co-hosted by our good buddy podcasting's Michael Bailey, the unnumbered episode 260. I read Superman 116, Superman the Man of Tomorrow 6, and The Adventures of Superman 539, which wrap up the Bottle City storyline. And on to new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we do actually have one of them. Of the paper variety. You know, the ones that are kind of floppy. And that is the penultimate issue of the miniseries, Lady Mechanica, The Monster in the Ministry of Hell, number three, from Joe Benitez through Image Comics. In this issue, we get another few more pieces in Lady M's puzzle. While in the present, she learns a lesson about how people with issues like hers, so-called freaks and monsters, do what they have to do to survive. And in the past, she has just escaped from the ministry. So looking forward to seeing how that all plays out. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Sir Manuel of the Tidewater sent a care package recently with a bunch of wild books in it, including an issue from the famous team of Giffen, Demetrius, and Maguire, but not from D.C. This was from the other side of the street. From 2005, the first issue of a five-part miniseries, Defenders Number 1. I don't know about you, but I don't think of Doctor Strange, Namor, Silver Surfer, or Hulk as especially humorous characters, nor the villain Nightmare. But somehow this team pulls it all off. I am not on Marvel Unlimited, but if I were, I would definitely be intrigued by this title. Also from Marvel 2005, the fifth issue of a six-issue mini from a controversial writer, who I really like, J. Michael Straczynski, Strange Number 5, from the Marvel Knights line. In this one, the Doc is recovering from recent battles, pleading with the Ancient One to teach him again the ways of sorcery, And he is going to need all that knowledge because at the end of the issue, we see Baron Mordo having teamed up with the dreaded Dormammu. So, drama. From Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, I've read a few more issues of a series I started recently that he's provided kindly to me. Nexus 11 and 12 from the creative team of Mike Barron and Steve Rude. Issue 11 was good, but 12 was great. A one-off where Nexus travels to the Sov system, think Soviet, system to take down the head of a multi-generational military dictatorship. A little sci-fi action and a lot of mid-1980s Cold War political thriller. Excellent. From the 50-cent box at Pulp Reality, an issue from 1966 that was coverless and pretty much falling apart. Which means 
That was the only way that I could ever read a comic from 1966, so I'm not complaining about the condition of The Man from Uncle, number seven from Gold Key. I've watched very, very few bits of that TV show, but know enough to recognize all the spy elements in this issue. The story was a little convoluted, but the adventure was solid, and overall the comic was quite good. One noteworthy thing about the issue was that it was told in two parts, but between them was a four-pager that introduced the lady spy, Jet Dream, and her gymnastics-based teammates. Fun little story and a nice little bit of an interlude, intermission, between the two parts of the cover story. And some kids' books that I read, some from Sir Rob Lance, Pulp Reality, some from Hoopla. I read Archie's Pals and Gals, 125, 127, 130, and 131. Sad Sack Army Life Today, 59. Richie Rich, Dollars and Cents, 51. Reggie and Me, 27 and 67. And Veronica, 178 and 195. My favorite bit from the Archie books was from a 1979 issue of Pals and Gals. See, Archie is complaining about his mom asking him to wash the dishes and do the laundry in the house, and so he finally agrees to do it just as long as no one spreads it around town that he is spending all day doing housework. So as Betty and Veronica look on, he bravely, I would say boldly, pushes the on button on the dishwasher. And then with all of his manly strength, he starts the washing machine. I LOL'd out loud at that one. So let's take a break here. And after we play this promo, because we haven't mentioned Shag enough this episode, we'll come back and talk about graphic novels, trade paperbacks, long runs, and mostly seasonal reading that I did during February. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. And we're back talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month, and seasonal reading, which for March means hashtag global comics month. I sourced these from a variety of sources, and I'll do my best to identify those as I go. And this time, I'm listing them in rough geographic order, starting nearby, starting Here in the U.S., which I know sounds strange, but let me explain. Pep Digital 101, Betty and Veronica Friends International. 
a collection of the Archie Gang's global adventures. So it's a stretch, but in the spirit of hashtag Global Comics Month, I'm allowing it. (laughs) Stories taking place in France, England, Asia, Africa, a true globe-trotting adventure. My favorite story featured Cheryl Blossom heading to Japan to make and market a new video game, followed closely by Veronica and her dad, along with family friend Lady Smitty, on an archaeological adventure to Mexico. And then, going around the world just a little bit north of here, and we start, of course, with the great hero from Scandinavia, he who stands on guard for thee, Captain Canuck, 9, 10, and 13, from the original run in the late 1970s. Richard Cumley's scripts and George Freeman's art are really solid stuff. There is some intensity to the story, some of that gritty 1970s stuff that was all over movies and TV in that era, which I found surprising, actually. Issue 10 was an espionage thriller, which surprised me just by presenting a story in that genre, but also by being quite dramatic and very well put together. Speaking of great Canadians, my good friend Rager Gord from Prayer and Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante podcast, sends some independent comics from his homeland, the Alberta province of the Great White North. These are educational nonfiction comics telling particular instances of history from that era, which I have come to understand as the Wild West of Canada. And each of these were signed by one of the creators, often writer Joey Ambrosi, and in one case it was Peter Brower. So these comic issues were I Survived the Frank Slide, the story of Jesse Leach, a woman who grew up in a small mining town, That was wiped out by a rock slide. And Legend of the Lost Lemon Mine, a story of gold, greed, and murder. The March on Fort Whoop-Up, which told the story of the 150 rugged men who made up the foundation of what would eventually become the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And the shootout. At the Bellevue Cafe, a tale of, well, a shootout at a cafe. A standoff between train robbers and law enforcement personnel. All of these issues take place in the same general area of Alberta. In some cases, the same town. As Americans, as I said, I tend to think of the Wild West as a purely American phenomenon. But no, Ranger Gord has set me straight. The western area of Canada was just as wild and crazy, which is why they needed the Mounties. And lastly, the shooting of Constable Lawson, telling the story of, well, the title does kind of give it away, the murder of a law enforcement professional at the hands of a gangster in the early 1920s. This was the most interesting of them all because it was told from the alternating points of view of the young children of the two men involved, the victim and the murderer. Very bold choice, and it certainly stands out. 
All five of these were very good in their own way, thank you, Gord. But that last one, the shooting of Constable Lawson, was just flat out a really good comic book. And then we move across the pond home to the mighty Arsenal Football Club and probably other stuff too. So I read the last batch of Marvel UK miniseries that I started reading maybe a couple years ago. And that was Battle Tide 2, 1 through 4. I guess the full name of this title is Death's Head 2 and Kill Power, colon, Battle Tide 2, colon, 1 through 4. <sighs> Which is proof, if it was needed, that this was produced in the early 1990s. The story is by Abnett and Lanning, and that helps ground the story to the extent that a story from the 90s featuring Death's Head and Kill Power can be grounded. This wasn't great. I'll just leave it at that. And then also for Marvel, Captain Britain and MI-13, 1 through 15 and Annual 1, written by one of the few comics creators I've actually had a meal with, actual British person Paul Cornell. This was related to the secret invasion event, hidden scrolls revealing themselves all over the world. This takes place in the aftermath of that. The focus in the first batch of issues concerned the Skrulls trying to steal all the world's magic and, of course, starting with Britain, because magic. The British superheroes all working with the government agency MI-13 come together and actually save magic by banishing all the Skrulls from Britain. This is a team that includes the recently back-to-life Captain Britain, the Black Knight, Pete Wisdom, Spitfire, the Good Vampire, and a strangely powered young doctor named Faiza Hussein. In the second storyline, Blade joined the team. He grew up in the UK, which is a bit of a problem seeing a Spitfire's on the team, and she's a, you know, a vampire. As they battle against demons in Birmingham, lords of hell who control a dream dimension, they become solid teammates, Blade and Spitfire, good friends, and maybe even more? There was at least one panel that definitely belonged last month in Hashtag Romance Comics Month. And I did mention vampires, right? Oh yeah, because Dracula shows up too. He is the star of the third trade, gathering all the world's vampires into his own land, his own small European nation. So between Spitfire and Blade, MI-13 gets drawn in. We also learn that many vampires, like the Skrulls before them, have infiltrated British government at all levels. And since the plot includes a small European nation, Dracula reaches out to Doom, but gets quite the cold shoulder from the great Latverian leader. Doom a member of a small and persecuted ethnic minority, regularly calls out Dracula for his racist ways, Hail Doom. And Dracula actually has a pretty good plan and makes great progress taking over the nation, but spoilers, doesn't actually fully manifest that takeover. So Sir Martin of Grey is safe. I mentioned the Marvel UK characters before, and a few of them show up here in the dramatic finale. 
Digitech, Death's Head, a few others. Those 90s-tastic characters are better in small doses as parts of teams than they usually are in those miniseries, but good on Paul Cornell to give those characters cameos. The Annual was an extra-length story starring Megan, who we met earlier in Brian Braddock's Dream World. Here, she's trying to get out of hell and not fully succeeding. It's a tragic story, a story of tragic love. But at the end, she is offered a way out by, again, Dr. Doom. Very fun stories, good characters, and I like the mix of politics and war and action and magic and supernatural. It's a good mix. And when you throw in Dr. Doom, it gets even better. The first digital trade of these Captain Britain stories also included the issue that introduced the character, Marvel Team-Up 65 and 66, in which Brian Braddock arrives in the U.S. as an exchange student, and he ends up rooming with, that's right, Peter Parker. And here's the shocking part. The first time these two characters meet in costume, they fight. I know, I didn't see it coming either. I actually enjoyed reading these because I covered... Marvel Team Up 65, the intro of Captain Britain on a Quarterbin podcast. But I'd never gotten around to finishing up the, the series. I'd never gotten past the cliffhanger. So, so these Captain Britain issues, these trades, worked all the way around for me. When I was in fifth grade, sixth grade, and seventh grades, I lived in the Southeast Asian nation of Thailand. And it was there that I was introduced to a couple of very famous, very popular European comic characters. These were produced in the album format, bigger than a traditional comic, pretty close to 8.5 by 11, maybe a little bit taller than that. Usually 52 to 64 pages long, and usually a complete story with a few two-part epics thrown in. I remember that one of our teachers, my fading memory tells me it was Dr. Seiler, 7th grade English, who had these books in his classroom, and you could read them if you finished the day's assignment. So it was there that I was introduced from France, from the creators Gassini and Uderzo, the character of Asterix. And between my bookshelf and Hoopla, I read, or reread, the first few offerings in that series, Asterix the Gaul and Asterix and the Golden Sickle. The overall story is of a group of Gauls in the ancient days, one of whom is the titular character, and these Gauls are completely surrounded by Romans, but are able to hold them off because their druid has created a formula that gives the Gaul fighters pretty much unstoppable powers for a brief period of time. Very fun, very funny series. Lots of terrible puns on names, lots of sight gags, funny action, funny characters. There's a lot going on with these stories, and I continued to enjoy them. Tons. The plot of the first one involves the Romans kidnapping Asterix and the Druid to convince the Druid to make them the secret super serum. That doesn't really work. I should say it spectacularly fails to work. 
And then in the second album, the wizard's golden sickle is stolen. And without it, he can't cut and mix the herbs required in his potions. And many shenanigans ensue in the efforts to retrieve it. The nice thing about these genres, and we've mentioned this before, is that there's a lot of overlap between them. So instead of pushing through and reading a bunch more asterisks here as global comics, I decided to push some of these off until next month, counting them as humor comics. The kind and lovely Sutherlands, who share a deep love for Tintin, another character that I was introduced to as a young person in Thailand, well, they made me aware of another series from the same publisher by a colleague of Hergé named E.P. Jacobs from Belgium, and that series is called Blake and Mortimer. This is a more adult series than Tintin. Uh, the lead characters are adults, for instance, and it lacks the zaniness of Captain Haddock or Professor Calculus and the outright slapstick of Thompson and Thompson. So plot and adventure and drama and danger... They take the center stage. There are some moments of silliness and humor here and there, or lightness, at least. Uh, but that just serves to balance the dramatic, plot-driven, plot-driven moments. So from Hoopla, I read The Mystery of the Great Pyramid, Parts 1 and 2, meaning the story was told over two albums or two volumes, about 110 pages in total. And the first half only featured Mortimer, looking for hidden treasures inside the Great Pyramid in Egypt. But since he is, in fact, Professor Mortimer, I am 100% behind that. And as a matter of fact, at the end of Part 1, Agent Blake of MI6 appears to have been killed. Spoilers, this is their second adventure, and there are more than 20 others, so no, he doesn't die. He makes a dramatic reappearance in part two, and together they, well, I'm not going to mention if they find the secret chamber of Horus, let's just say it was a solid, happy, satisfying ending. And I also read The Francis Blake Affair, a spy thriller in which British intelligence discovers that the mole in their midst is Blake himself. Say it ain't so. Mortimer, of course, can't believe it. But all the evidence points towards Blake. So Mortimer goes on the run himself to find Blake first and to get the truth from him directly. Very dramatic, very suspenseful story. Excellent. And similar to what I said about Asterix, I think I'm going to grab some more of these Blake and Mortimer volumes in a few months when Adventure Comics Month rolls around. And then leaving Europe, we get to Asia. These are going to be mostly from Japan, probably the number two market for comics around the world after the U.S. And from there, I read from Eclipse Comics, who I remember as a reprint publisher of a lot of black and white manga. I read, purchased from Pulp Reality, My the Psychic Girl 26. Of course, it's tough jumping into a story at this point based on the way Eclipse reprinted these, although it counts as issue 26. It's actually parts 49 and 50 of a story that I have no idea how long it went. 
This one in particular was not a bad read. Lots of action, lots of people in ordinary clothing flying through the air, which is kind of a cool look. This one seemed a little less overdramatic in terms of the art, which also helped. Uh, this was probably my favorite manga read of the month. From Udon Comics via Devil's Due, I read Street Fighter number 10 from 2004. Good story. Agent Chun-Li finding some super secret information drive while she and her ailing aging mentor kick butt and take a few names. So what I'd expect from a Street Fighter comic and delivered in a pretty solid, fun way. And also from Hoopla, I read a series that I'd heard of, probably seen a few times at the library, but that I'd never actually dipped into. Batman, the Jaro Kuwata Batmanga, 1 through 19. The stories collected in this volume are Lord Deathman, which I know I've heard people talk about, and also Dr. Faceless, The Human Ball, the Revenge of Professor Gorilla. And will someone please tell me why I never knew a story called The Revenge of Professor Gorilla existed before now? Friends, you have let me down. <laughs> and also, Gogo the Magician and the Man Who Quit Being Human. These were unbelievably interesting, non-stop fun and adventure. The manga nature of the art was only distracting in a few places. And thinking about that, I wonder if that's because these are from the late 1960s, and maybe what we think of now as manga style hadn't fully developed, I'm not sure. Lord Deathman is a great story, as is Dr. Faceless. But attention, must also be paid to the human ball, a villain who covers himself in a metal elastic alloy of some type, allowing him to bounce around and cause more effect than the Legion's bouncing boy ever has. Delightful and wacky story, and of course, even in manga, it's not really a DC story until a super smart talking monkey shows up. And this one even has the advantage of being from a profession I know a thing or two about. I, of course, refer to the aforementioned Professor Gorilla. An epic, epic story. I unabashedly loved this. There is a second volume of this on Hoopla, and unless I can't resist, can't hold out that long, I expect to read it next March. And from the legendary Stan Sakai from IDW, the color version of Usagi Yojimbo number no. 2, and then from Dark Horse, the black and white versions of Usagi Yojimbo 47 and 48. I hope that Ed Moore is pleased. Ed, of course, hosts the Ronin Rabbit podcast covering this character. These were very good, as you would expect, given its reputation. One of the black and white issues, issue 48, didn't even have the title character in it, and it was still good. That's clearly a very bold choice. The art was great. Not getting any full series, full stories. It's not a lot that I can comment on, but I can certainly see from just this little experience why these are so well thought of. 
And the last one is from Hong Kong, I believe, Jade Man Comics, from 1989, The Blood Sword, number 10. 60 pages of swordplay and kicks and probably, at least maybe, a story as well. But to be honest, I really couldn't tell. All right, well, that was a fun collection of comics from around the world. And next month, which begins with April Fool's Day, we will do some hashtag humor comics month reading. And that brings us to the rest of what I read last month. Starting with Amazing Spider-Man 1 through 11, but no, 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 not the Lee and Ditko version. This is the 2017 volume written by Dan Slott. In these issues, Peter is a junior Tony Stark. He's even called that at one point. He runs Parker Enterprises, making him a bit of Elon Musk and Steve Jobs with just a little Mark Zuckerberg thrown in. And he's also working closely with S.H.I.E.L.D., teaming up with his old buddy Johnny Storm on some missions. They go up mostly against the Zodiacs with some other villains in the background. Not bad, although this is clearly all about the other Marvel properties. Fury, Coulson, Melinda May, Mockingbird, all appearing in other media at the time that these issues were out. And I don't mind different takes on characters, although the idea of Peter Parker as an actual uh, successful grown-up person is a bit strange. I know, circumstances change, people change, scenarios change, and there is something valuable about putting characters in different situations to see how they'll react. But I do want Peter's normal state, his status quo, to be more of the lovable loser. But that's just my taste. These issues, pretty fun. And also in The Spider Family, a series written by noted sci-fi and fantasy author Saladin Ahmed, most known probably for his Throne of the Crescent Moon. A writer who's also building up a pretty good body of comic book work as well. This is Miles Morales, 1 through 6, from 2018. This is the Straight Out of Brooklyn storyline, which has him team up, more or less, with the Rhino, and getting an assist from Captain America himself and the new heroine Starling to battle a cadre of child kidnappers organized and run by Tombstone. I like that this version of Miles taps into the original concept of Spidey, high school student balancing a ton of responsibilities. Academic, personal, relational, familial. With a character with slightly different details, slightly different costume, even slightly different powers. And it's it's that familiarity. I mean, that's why... For better or worse, it's easier to create a subsidiary character, a legacy character, and have that character catch on and gather a level of popularity than it is to create a brand new character from scratch. All that being said, I enjoyed those issues. And from a dime sale at World's Greatest Comics sometime last year, I read some black and white comics from Malibu slash Eternity from 1988. Outlander, one through six. It's an interesting story concept, maybe one more fitting for a prose novel than a comic book, but interesting. Professor Adam Gallo, and let's just say, 
That's a pretty great way to start a comic book. You had my interest at Professor. <laughs> Professor Gallo goes to work for ICE, which in this case is the Institute for Control of Societal Endangerment. He goes around the world manipulating populaces and leaders and economies and technologies and all that stuff. Lots of details, intricate plotting, but it did read more like a Robert Ludlum novel than a comic book. Lots of panels, lots of words, and the art doesn't bring a lot to the table. But from a writer's perspective, I get this, especially in the late 80s, the barriers to entry are lower for getting your story published by Malibu than getting a publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. So again, interesting story. I like the story, the world, the character, but I'm uneasy because I don't know that comics was the best forum for telling that story. And I think that's everything. Thinking about my favorite reads of the month, you know, this was a fun month. JLA 32, focusing on Huntress, was fun. The shooting of Constable Lawson from up there in Canada was a gripping read. I really enjoyed Nexus 12. Bat Manga was a hoot to read. I enjoyed revisiting Asterix. Doom showed up in Captain Britain, so of course, that was epic. But in terms of my absolute favorites, I'm going over to Europe. The grown-up version of Tintin-style stories, the Blake and Mortimer series. And the best of those that I read was the espionage tale, the Francis Blake Affair. My favorite reads of the month. Thank you, Sutherlands, for introducing me to Blake and Mortimer. Next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some humor comics for April. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books that I read in April in an episode that ought to be out sometime in early May. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books I've mentioned, especially if you've read them. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment. On the Facebook and blog post for the episode, the blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.